Tonight, if you will, come again with me to the book of John, John's gospel. We've been walking through this for now some time. We've gotten to verse 53 of chapter 7. It's the very last verse, uh, and it picks up. This is really uh, for biblical text scholarship. Uh, these next 12 verses are a bit of a, a, a question. Not question, please hear me. Good scholarship in no way denies the, the um, authenticity, the truthfulness of what we are reading in these verses tonight. However, it's just an unusual passage in how it's included in Scripture. Men didn't just say, well, hey, we like that passage, we'll include it in the Bible, or we like that book, and it seems to be uh, you know, to our taste, so we'll conclude it. No, 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 that wasn't the way. God made it clear what was to be included. It wasn't our human choices that included. That's why modern-day uh, skeptics often want to bring up the extra-biblical books and say, see, Christians didn't want you hearing about this. Well, because those books aren't consistent in their message with the gospel, with the rest of it, Scripture. And so why would you include something that didn't have the same message or the same tenor or the same ideas. It, it, in fact, would be contrary to much of the Scripture. So those weren't included. So biblical scholarship is not just a, I like this or I don't like that. It is very scholarly, very technical in many ways. Uh, but what we find here in these passages, and excuse me, in these verses we're going to read tonight, is a passage that is consistent not only with the, the truthfulness of the gospel, but the very character of Christ himself. And so when we open this book and we read this passage as well as any other, you can look into the scriptures and say, thus saith the Lord. Okay, that's the bottom line. Now, as we look at this, let's begin again in verse 53 of chapter 7. Everyone went to his home. Now turn to chapter 8. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. I don't think he just went out camping. I believe he went to the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha there at Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Just as we know, uh, he was dear, they were dear to him and, and him to the three of these uh, siblings. But early in the morning, again, note the time, he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach them. Now before we get to verse 2, I just want to stop here. Verse 1 and 2 as a, as a contextual framing as we often talk about here on Wednesday nights, making sure we understand what's happening. He is sitting down. Now what had happened the day before, the great day, the last final day of the Feast of Tabernacles, it was a, at that point in history for the Jews, it was a day of solemn assembly. They'd had seven days of celebration, seven days of the water ceremony that we talked about and how that all represented uh, both the past and the present and prayers for the future. But at that last day, that day of supposed quietness and, and reflection and prayerfulness, Jesus had stood up, verse 37 of chapter 7, read there with me. If you turn back a, maybe a half page. It says there, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out. So in a, on a quiet day, he stood up and, and sh all but shouted this testimony about those that are thirsty can come to him and receive living water, and it will become in them a very wellspring out of the very innermost part of their body, flowing over into the lives of those around them. Now, 
that's the, the background. Now, today, the very next day, quietly, he comes in early in the morning. Crowds are already gathering, finding him there on the Temple Mount. And he takes the position of an Eastern Semitic teacher. He sits down. Okay, Again, now you've got the scene painted for you. Look with me in verse 3. Again, let me just, before I say this, early in the morning. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, that is said to Jesus, teacher. It's really interesting that they're, they're giving him this word rabbi, they're a note of honor, a title of respect, but there's no respect. You know how they say 7% of what you communicated are the very words, and the other 93% is nonverbal communication. It may be body language, it may be your facial expression, it may be tone or volume, but all of those are extraneous to the words you say. Well, they may have said rabbi or teacher, but there was no respect in what they were saying. Why? This woman has been caught in adultery. Note the last phrase. In the very act. It's early in the morning, and they're dragging this young lady, lady of whatever age, into the court, publicly humiliating her, but they have no concern about her sin. Not, not in reality. Look with me. They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down. Now, he's already sitting. He's already been teaching. Already at this early point in the day, he has started teaching from a seated position And then it says here again, Jesus stooped down. That is, I think he just was sitting there and on maybe a little stool or the edge of some uh, 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 bench or uh, a a stone uh, part of the structure there on the Temple Mount. He just found a comfortable seat and he sat down. And now out in front of his knees, he's stooped over, way over. He's reaching out. Now, you understand, he's, he's sitting, stooping forward, and the woman and these scribes and Pharisees are right in front of him. Now, read with me again. Verse 7, but when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up. And that is, he, he leaned back at least. It could be that he completely stood to his feet. But whatever the the exact nature of his movement, he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he again sat down and began stooped over riding in the sand in front of this woman and her gathered accusers. Again, he stooped down and rode on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of a court. She had not moved. 
the entire time. Straightening up, again, we're not sure if he just leaned back and straightened his back or whether he stood up in front of her. But he said to her, woman, again, this is totally different. They used a term of respect. He used a term, not of disrespect, but it, as we've talked about when he, when he said, used the same word in his uh, miracle at Cana, and he asked his mother, woman, what has this to do with me? What has this to do with us? It wasn't disrespect. It was just a, an acknowledgment of, of how that, in that day, in that culture, in that time, how the language was just, it was an, a note of address, a name of address, a title. And he says, woman, where are they? Now, I don't think she had to be told who he was talking about, do you? Did no one condemn you? I think this woman caught in the very act of adultery, in the early dawning hours of a new day, by these hateful men, conniving, scheming, diabolically driven men, Perhaps they gave her a little bit of decency and she grabbed a, a sheet or some kind of outer garment, she, a coat of some kind. Maybe she had that. We're not even told she had that, given the context of her wrenching away from that bed of iniquity. But she, standing before the Lord now, said no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, this is, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. Three things I want us to understand about this text. First of all, I want you to see the devious plot. The devious plot. These men were so self-righteous that they failed to see their own guilt in the moment that they contrived this, this kangaroo court no concern, not, even, not that they weren't concerned about sin, because that was, you know, pointing out other people's sin was their, was their well, bailiwick. That was their sweet spot. That's what they did most readily. They had it down to a honed edge. But they really weren't concerned about her sin. Her sin was just an avenue to trap entrap Jesus. So when we see this devious plot, there your first note on your, on your outline tonight, this devious plot, we have to understand that they were, they were being duplicitous. Their duplicity, they were being false. They were, they were being deceitful, untrustworthy. They were being sinful and feeling really self-righteous about it. 
Now, you and I can look 2,000 years past this little episode in the life and ministry of Jesus, and we can go, wow, those guys, boy, they really were absolute heinous in their hearts and in their attitudes. It's obvious they were blind by their sin, blinded by Satan himself perhaps, blinded by their own aspirations, whatever it was, those guys couldn't find their own nose. They were so blind. Hmm. The problem is that most every human being I've ever met, including me, when I look in the mirror in the morning, we're prone to self-righteousness. Well, Lord, I'm, I'm so grateful that you've done so much good in my life. Thank you for what I have and our family. And thank you for your love and your grace in my life. And I'm just, I'm just happy to serve you. And we may not mean anything about it on the surface, but our hearts need to be checked too. You see, that's why we don't just look in a, in a physical mirror, but we look into the Word of God morning by morning so that we don't tend to forget what we're really like. Several months ago, there was a post that came across uh, my wife's feed and my daughter's feed, and I didn't know the person. It was somehow the algorithms of social media meant that I didn't have any connection to the one posting it, but a bit... It was about uh, how uh, evangelicals had been taught to make themselves the hero of every Bible story they read in their devotional lives. That we were to be the good guys. You know, we were, to, and I was like, do what? And she said, my wife said, yeah, read this. And I read it, and I still didn't really understand what the person was saying. And it took three or four times. I go, oh, I, I think I see what they're saying, but, but that's not even right. I mean, that might have been that person's take on it, but let me just share with you, I'm not the hero of the Bible stories. Uh, in fact, I'm not, I'm not a David in my own Goliath giant fights. Uh, I'm Mike. I'm, I'm a New Testament believer. David was iconic, and yes, his life teaches us many things, but I don't, when I read the scriptures, and when you read the scripture, we don't put our play, ourselves in the place of the hero. We we put ourselves in the place of the spectator saying, Lord, teach me today. Out of the life of David, out of the life of Saul, out of the life of Paul, perhaps you can teach me how I can be more of a humble Timothy or Titus so that I can follow and grow in you. But Lord, I, I'm not those people. When we look at this passage, we need to be very careful that we don't say, no, I'm the hero. I can look on to these self-righteous scribes and Pharisees and say, Oh Lord, I thank you that I'm not like them. I think that's a passage we could look up and remember that that was exactly what the scribes and Pharisees said when they were praying and they heard the almost guttural prayer of the taxpayer. Oh, I'm so glad I'm not like that taxpayer across the aisle there. You and I need to be very careful that duplicity doesn't become a part of our daily plan. Oh, we may not be gunning for the Savior, but we may be very self-righteous nonetheless. 
it's the proning of the human heart. No matter who you are, where you're born, what your culture was, how, what kind of home you were raised in, whether your mama changed your diaper right or not, you and I are self-righteous because we're arrogant, rebellious sinners before a holy God. And we have to come to terms with that. Not as heroes, but humbled by the holiness of God and the grace that we find in Jesus Christ. Not only were they devious in this plan because of their own duplicity, but also look with me again in verse 3. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, rabbi, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, again, there is no doubt in any of these 12 verses that the woman was guilty of adultery. Okay, we're not ignoring that fact, but let's look on. Now, given that she was caught in the act, there's no doubt that she's guilty. Now, the law, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? Now, let me just share with you. This, scholars say, because there was at this point in Jewish teaching uh, a, a little bit of a difference. It seems that they had come not only because Jesus says in his first response, he that is without sin, let him be the first to cast a stone at her. So apparently they had rock in hand. Now that tells us, according to the scholars, that because of the first century understanding among the Jewish legalists, that this woman was likely betrothed but not married. Because at that time, Jewish law would have said a betrothed couple, both would be stoned, but a married couple or a person who was married and involved in adultery, they would be strangled. Now, that's not a given, but that just, that's what historical uh, uh, researchers have been able to learn from the days of, of the first century Jewish uh, legalities. But it is very clear that they were ready for capital punishment. Look with me. It goes on. In verse... Uh, again, verse, uh, well, let me read right. Verse 5, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But, and, and accusing him of what? Well, here's the, the, the scenario, the, uh, the enigma, the puzzle that they thought they had trapped Jesus with. Because if they heard him say, no, 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 that would be too harsh. That would be too far. That would, not, that would be more punishment than the crime deserved. Then they could say, see, he doesn't believe the law of Moses. He doesn't believe the word of God. He's, he's some kind of, of un." tethered, uneducated, illiterate country preacher who's leaning to the left, if you will. Liberal. A promiscuous legal, as much as she is a promiscuous woman. 
But if he said, you're right. The law says it, and we need to stone her immediately. Then they could accuse him, as they wanted to do, before Rome, because Rome alone had the opportunity and the right to extend capital punishment at the time. So would he be rebelling against Moses or against Caesar? Against the law or against the might of the empire? Oh, we've got him now. He, he, we've got him in a corner. What's he going to do now? Call a friend? No. His, their devious plan is followed second, look with me, by, excuse me, their, their devious plot or plan is followed by his discerning plan. First of all, verse 7. Excuse me, verse 6, second part. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. Now, friends, let me tell you. You've probably heard some really wonderful messages out of John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, and how that pastor or the people that he had read speculated on what Jesus wrote in the sand. Let me tell you the final answer. Nobody knows. We're not told, not in this passage, not in a cross-reference passage, not in any indication in the Old Testament prophecies what Jesus would write in the sand. We haven't been told in prophecies of the Revelation what he did as a result of what he wrote in the sand in the future. None of that is there. It doesn't matter. If it did, we would know. But what he did do in stooping down across his seated position and just write, doodle. He could have been doodling. You know, the creator of the universe probably could be a pretty good artist in the sand, you know? Better than any Zen garden sand thing that you can have on your desk, okay? I guarantee you that. But the reality is that what happened there was that we learned Jesus wouldn't be pressed into anything. That's just a, a lanyard. Dr. Allison, Gray, Dr. Gray Allison, founder of Mid-America Seminary, used to say, that's a lanyard. That's a little extra at no extra cost. But you know, you and I can be more like Jesus. When we're pressed in and we think there's no way out and everybody around us says, oh boy, he's, got, he's between a rock and a hard place. Why don't you just sit and doodle for a minute? Even if the people that are asking you the question are standing exactly opposite of you and breathing down your neck for an answer, that doesn't mean that you have to immediately respond out of a knee-jerk reaction. Wisdom is not something we just erupt with rashly, thoughtlessly, just because we feel peer pressure to do so. Wisdom is something that we, maybe it's just like when Nehemiah was caught being sad before the king 
He had already been praying for a long time, but now he'd come back to work, and, and when he was asked, why should you be sad? Why are you sad? You see, you must understand that in that context, the king could have killed him for being sad in his, the king's presence. So instead of saying, well, give me five and I'll come back. No, he just shot up one of those emergency prayers. God help me. And then he answered wisely. But why? Because he'd already been doing the praying. He'd already been walking, seeking praying, begging God to do something back at Jerusalem. And so when the moment came when he felt pressed, instead of just answering out of his own mind and human intellect, he asked the Lord very quickly, give me words. And the word of God began to fill him with what he needed, exactly what he needed, fully what he needed. Now, Nehemiah was a foreshadowing of what was happening here. Jesus the Son of God had put himself under the authority of the Father and then filled by the Spirit, he just sat there for a moment, let the thing simmer. And let them think, uh-huh, we've done so well at this that he doesn't even know what to say. It's not that he's going to say something right. He just doesn't know which wrong thing he's going to say yet. That's what they were thinking. And then the Lord straightened up. And he looked back into their eyes. And I think he probably scanned every one of those old and young scribes and Pharisees so that he knew they had his, excuse me, that he had their attention. And then he says these fateful words. I, I think it's one of the most iconic responses Jesus ever gave in his entire ministry. Now, he said some profound things all along. Don't get me wrong. This isn't more important than anything else. I'm just saying the succinctness of this moment and, and the specificity in the, in the moment and in the circumstance he was in, it is just wow. Right into their eyes, he says, He who is without sin among you, not he who is without sin here, but you, you guys right there, you scheming, devilish, self-righteous manipulators. He who is without sin among you, allow or let him or permit him to be the first to throw a stone at her. And he didn't say, he who is without this sin that you're accusing her of. He said, who is without sin? It's an inclusive umbrella, generic. It's, it's the kind of word and the kind of use in the moment that says, if you think you've never sinned, then you go ahead and throw that rock that's in your hand. Hmm. 
He didn't tell them to let her go and thus deny the law. He didn't say, yeah, stone her here, right on Temple Mount. No, he didn't anger Rome. But then he sat back down. He caused them to kind of simmer for a moment, but now that moment... Have you ever been somewhere where somebody was supposed to say something, but nobody was saying it, and it just got really awkward? I mean, like, please, somebody, if somebody would just have a coffin fit, that'd be great. Just something happened. This silence and everybody looking at everybody else looking for an answer. This is not what we need right now. We need movement. This needs to resolve quickly. We're all uncomfortable here. But Jesus let that awkwardness just settle in. I have been young and now I'm old. And I've not seen the righteous forsaken nor their children begging bread. So said David. But you know what? We not only see the faithfulness of God over time. When as we age, we get to see that more clearly, more routinely. We, we begin to realize it's not just a, every once in a while God shows up to answer our need or, or help us out in a pinch. But God is ever faithful. Moment by moment, His mercies are new every morning. He is abundantly present. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. It's not that He's in and out. Our Father, He's always present. Our Father is not a deadbeat dad. He's not a distant dad. God is not dead. Our, our dad is not dead. Our dad is very present in our time of trouble. But as surely as we know his goodness, his faithfulness. Another thing, life and a little bit of maturity. And the more maturity, the more singularly we can see this. God is good, yes. And I am not. Now I'm not here to say we ought to be like Martin Luther before he really had a life-changing experience of faith in Jesus Christ alone where he would take a, a whip and whip himself trying to beat himself and punish himself. Self-flagellation is what they called it. Because of his own sin, it wasn't that. I'm not trying to encourage that kind of thing. But you and I know if we really look at our lives, the older we get, the more clear it becomes, I'm not without sin. Paul, writing his letters 59, 60 through about 65 A.D., he was already a little older than probably Jesus was when he died. You remember just after the death of Jesus when they stoned Stephen, the martyr, the deacon of the early church. It was Paul that was standing there guarding their cloaks as they stoned the young deacon to death. He was an up-and-coming scholar 
in Judaism. And then when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and changed his life and direction and his eternity, years later when he was writing, (laughs) Paul would say, the thing that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, those are the very things I wind up doing. Oh, woe is me. This is a man way down in the faith, along life's faith journey. A man who would ultimately write half of the New Testament. And yet he was keenly aware of his own sinfulness apart from Christ. Let me just share with you. When the Lord Jesus looks into our eyes and says, I know you feel really self-righteous right now. And you want to write this wrong. And you want to hold a lot of people accountable. Sometimes even me. But I want to tell you, if you're without sin... You cast the first stone at the center in front of you. The one you want to pay attention to? If you're without sin, then you can be the first to start the judgment. But look with me what the passage goes on to say. When they heard it, that is the ones he intended to hear it, that group of scribes and Pharisees, the scheming, diabolical manipulators that they were. They began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone. Hmm. And the woman. She was left where she was. In the center of the court. It's early morning. It's the fall of the year. By now it may be somewhere between the first and second week of October. Based on the Jewish calendar and when the Feast of Booze, the Feast of Tabernacles had just finished. Even in the dry, arid, Middle Eastern climate, it gets a little cooler, especially in the early morning. Perhaps even the dew hadn't been burnt off the grass around Jerusalem. She had been wrenched out of her bed. Yes, it was a bed of adultery. Yes, it was a sin-soaked bed. But there she had stood during this whole interaction whether completely exposed or with some small remnant of a blanket or a cloak or sheet or something. We don't know, but she was certainly not in her best attire. They left. Jesus, in conflict and excuse me, in contrast to their devious plan he had a very wise, discerning plan. But I want you to see the third thing as we finish this afternoon. As we look at this moment, these final three verses, we just read verse 9, 
Verse 10 says, straightening up. <laughs> I guess the, the sand around him had, well, it become void of any more space. His doodling was done. But he also, as the Lord knew, the only two people on this courtyard now are me and an abused woman. And he straightened up. I don't think he was rearing back like he had done moments before. I think he was straightening up so that she could look at him and see that his demeanor was not like it was with those scribes and Pharisees. I think what he was doing was saying, I'm straightening up so that you hear me as clearly as they did, but oh, so differently. In that quiet morning, when coolness and condemnation settled on that courtyard at the same moment. Jesus looks at her this time. I don't think she had looked up from the courtyard stones the whole time. I think her shame and her disgrace, her, her fear, she was, oh, Oh, every emotion that she could have felt was being rifled through her over and over and over again in those moments, faster than the mind could discern it. She was feeling everything, whole, whole loads of shame and guilt and sin. And she may have never met the Lord before. Maybe she didn't even know much about this Jesus. But she had heard what he said. She had also seen what had happened. And he asked her, Look with me, woman. Where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, in the first part of verse 11, No one, Lord. I want to tell you three things about this last divine pattern. This last note, it's the divine pattern. Why do I believe so strongly that this particular passage ought to be in the book of John? Because the Bible says in John chapter 1, and verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In that moment, the divine pattern, this, this wonderful, wonderful pattern 
that is consistent throughout John, consistent throughout all the Gospels, in the entirety of the New Testament, and is foreshadowed and predicted and prophesied throughout the Old Testament. This is it, friends. When you and I stand before the Savior, it's personal. We're not going to be judged. We're not going to be interacted with by the Lord Jesus as a group. When God deals with you and me, both now and in that last day, it's just going to be one-on-one. It's going to be personal. Hmm. Does no one condemn you? No one, Lord. He had said... Whoever is without sin among you. Now, she may have not caught all the nuances of what he was saying, but who is not with, he who is without sin among you, let him cast the phone. What she understood, I believe, based on the way the passage is built and shared with us today is that she understood the only one that could have rightly, sinlessly thrown the stone was still standing before her. And again, Paul would later remind us, in Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. You see, it's not only personal, but it's poignant. You see, when we realize that Jesus deals with us not in groups, not in clans, not in, in ethnicities, it's not about the fact that if you're, one, if you're born this way, you're going to be this way until you die. It's not about, oh, you're, you're part of that family, so you're good people, or, or oh my goodness, you're, you're, your family's part of the mafia. You are a bad man. <laughs> That's not the way it works, folks. You and I give an account for ourselves and no one else. Now, what we do affects other people. I'll grant you that. But when God looks into our hearts and our lives and our situations, He's dealing with us as a person. It's always personal. It's poignant as well. Hmm. No one, Lord. And he says, neither do I. Don't you know that there was an incredible burden dropped off that woman's shoulders? When the only one that could have rightly stoned her said, neither do I. Her life was transformed. Even if you can say, well, that word Lord is just a, like no, no one sir or no one master or no one mister. 
Even if you don't give it the, the weight of the fact that she understood this was no more than just a man. This was the sinless Son of God. It's still poignant. Finally. <laughs> it's also prescriptive. What she hears is, neither do I go from now on sin no more. You see, a lot of times we get it wrong in the fact that we're either all grace or we're all truth. And in this moment of this passage, this uniquely wonderful, illustrative passage, Jesus not only says, or we're not only told he was full of grace and truth, he lives the fact that he's full of grace and truth. I don't condemn you. I'm giving you the opportunity to, to know forgiveness and restoration and now go but sin no more. That's not, don't be an adulteress anymore. It's go and sin no more. It's, it's not that he was putting upon her her own self. I, mean, I got you out of the ditch, but you got to keep yourself out of the ditch from now on. No, 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 no. He's saying what you've experienced is forgiveness. Now walk, live, go, and choose from now on in the light of the forgiveness you've received. You're not obligated to be good because you were saved. I know a lot. Listen, my parents, they thought if they kept me and my brother in church, they'd keep us from sin. <laughs> we learned how to sin from the best of them, okay? It's not about us trying to prove to God that we're worthy of his forgiveness. It's the fact that we're so glad that he's forgiven us. We don't want to sin anymore. We don't want to in any way disdain the forgiveness in which we stand. That we don't want to in any way blotch or stain the, the wonderful cleansing that he's provided. There's a lot of folks I want to see when I get to heaven. She's one of them. I really do. Because some of you have seen this series, The Chosen. There's a lady there in the first season, maybe the first or second episode. She becomes a main character. And when asked what it was about Jesus, she says, listen, and I'm paraphrasing even the, the script. But all I know, sir, is what I was before I met him and what my life's been like after I met him. And the only thing that was different was him. I'm blotching that big time. But let me just share with you, the only difference in any of our lives is Him, full of grace and truth. 
neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your grace and truth. That grace and truth that tells us mercy never diminishes morality. But it always allows us to know your grace, your forgiveness, your making us whole, restoring us to what you always intended us to be. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his life. And as Lauren reminded us so well, thank you for the blood that makes us whole. In his name we pray, amen.